You're listening to The Leonard Lopate Show on AM820 and 93.9 WNYC. What is a shrug just a shrug? What does blushing reveal about your true feelings? What are you really saying when you fold your arms across your chest? Whether we know it or not, we are constantly conveying silent signals to other people through subtle movements and facial expressions. On today's Please Explain, we will do some decoding of body language and nonverbal communication and look at the psychology and physiology behind why we communicate this way. Joining us now is Dr. Dana Carney, Associate Professor at the University of California, Berkeley, Haas School of Business, and we invite you to join the conversation. Our number is 212-433-9692. If you have any questions about body language, Give us a call, or you can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate, or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Dana, uh, have humans and our pre-human ancestors always used body language to communicate? Uh, I imagine that it was used even more before complex verbal languages were developed. Yeah, you know, humans and, and all animals use a lot of their... Thank you for having me on the show, by the way. Hello, Leonard. Hi. Um, hi. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, a great deal of evidence that, that all animals, at least that we've had contact with or have documented, use their bodies, their ears, their tails, um, ripples in their skin to communicate all, all kinds of things. Now, the messages weren't obviously as complex as they are now, um, but we think that nonverbal communication predates verbal. What percentage of the way that we communicate now is nonverbal? That's unclear. So there was a, a paper by Morabian in the 1970s that was really compelling, and that statistic was used for a long, long time. And I think he said in his paper 70% or something like that. But um, we haven't we haven't really figured that out yet because it varies so wildly by you know are you talking to a friend, an acquaintance, uh, you know what kind of of um, of interaction is it? How much? Of the of the content can be conveyed verbally. Um, sometimes we need, like, try to describe a spiral with words, right? All you need is a finger and a little bit of Euclidean space, and you can describe a spiral. But with words, it's really, really hard. So um, we haven't quite figured out what percentage of our language is nonverbal versus verbal. And then some people express themselves nonverbally more than others. Um, there are yeah. people who use their hands to accent, emphasize their speech, um, uh, but that seems to be more common in certain cultures and can yep. vary uh, considerably among individuals within a culture as we witnessed during the various debates during the recent political campaign. Some uh, people use their hands a lot while others kept their hands folded. Yep, you've got some good questions there. So, um the gestures and moving your hands around a lot uh, does vary by culture. So you can kind of think of um, folks from uh, Italian culture, they tend to, you know, sort of a stereotype that they tend to use their hands more often than folks from perhaps a more stoic culture, like, uh, you know, folks from the UK, they tend to use their hands a little bit less. And when they do, they're more focused and controlled. Gestures are really interesting. We're actually studying them in the lab right now, and um, I can't give you too much information because the papers aren't published, but I will say that gestures are not created equally. You know, they, they're very qualitatively different. Um, a gesture that's 
highly controlled and stays close to the body is perceived differently than gestures that kind of fly all around and you know but but what is common among them is that they tend to illustrate speech and these wonderful experiments have been done where if you make people sit on their hands while while they're trying to communicate something they become less effective at communicating it's as if we need our hands to communicate and if you make us sit on them it somehow debilitates our cognition is a body language learned or is it hardwired in in our brains is are there revol- evolutionary reasons for us to react and communicate non-verbally yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. Um, so folks who are blind and deaf do uh, engage in some types of nonverbal communication. There were, um, you know, some very clever studies looking at pride, the pride expression, for example. So um, some uh, colleagues of mine from the San Francisco State University and the University of British Columbia did this work where they looked at judo competitions and there's this like pride expression where you you know your chest sticks out and you put you put your hands in the air and you look up your chin goes up a little bit and they looked at um people that win judo competitions that are sighted versus those who are unsighted and you see the same kind of pride expression so the authors surmised from that piece of evidence among a bunch of other pieces of evidence that you know at least that if a, if, if a social emotion like pride that you would think is really, really culturally determined and, you know, something learned, if that seems to be kind of automatic, that that lends a lot of credibility to all of the early work by Ekman and O'Sullivan and Friedman that kind of argued for uh, universality in facial expressions um, and that were kind of born or hardwired with at least the architecture to begin engaging in these various facial expressions. You know, and then there's Darwin's book, Expression of Emotion in Man and Animal, and he kind of draws parallels between various mammals, um, including humans, and some of the similarities among facial expressions. So there's no question that some of some of what we do with our faces and bodies where uh, we evolved to do, it makes it makes for more rapid communication. I mean, look, at the most basic level, if there's a fire in the building and all I have to do is glance over at you and you're sitting in the corner of the room and give you a fearful facial expression, your your whole physiological system is going to ready itself for the words I'm about to say, which is, Leonard, we got to go. The building's on fire. And so, you know, with a quick glance, I can ready you, your body to mobilize. And there are all kinds of ways in which nonverbal cues and nonverbal messages um, make verbal more, more efficient. Um, what about and- grunting or screaming or throat clearing? Would they yeah. be considered nonverbal behavior since they're... It Not depends. using words? It depends. So it's a good question. So so um that so from an experimental perspective, uh, I can't answer the question theoretically. I think theoretically mostly no. But that said, if I were doing a study and you know um, throat clearing was uh, something that was happening in a systematic way for because someone's ego kept kept getting damaged in the context of a of an interaction or something. 
I would think that throat clearing was actually a useful behavior, and I might code it. It might be it might become interesting. So when, when it's just like responding, if it's just a physiological reaction like a sneeze and it's not caused by something social or something psychological, then you probably want to keep it outside of the category of nonverbal behavior. Because usually when people like me are talking about nonverbal behavior, they're talking about something with some sort of psychological or physiological, you know, heft to it. Like blushing, which is involuntary but sends a message. Uh, do we have other physiological changes uh, uh, yeah, sometimes sweating, when we we're crying. communicating? Yeah, crying, sweating, um, our skin, you know, heats up. We have uh, other sorts of things that um, that you can't see so well, but that you know are happening in the body. Uh, the the thing that's cool about nonverbal behavior is that often kind of is a little tiny bit of insight into what's going on inside of the mind or what's going on inside of the body. You can't see all the blood, you know, rushing to my face um, because I uh, am experiencing, um, you know, basically uh, a, a blood rushing to my to the periphery, and that. Um, in some people with thin skin or from certain cultures, you can see it on my on my cheeks, and so you're like, oh, you're blushing. And most of us don't have that problem, and you can't tell we're blushing, but many people um, aren't so lucky, and what, so you can kind of tell. What's the function of the brain's limbic system? Uh, the brain's limbic system, so there's a number of different parts of the brain's limbic system. So, you know, I mean, it depends which part you're talking about. So you're talking about the the more emotion parts, the memory parts, which part of the brain's limbic system. Well, I was wondering whether our limbic brain communicates our true feelings through nonverbal displays. Uh, oh, I and if it's possible to deceive our limbic brain. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's a pretty hefty question. So, um, you know, there are parts of the limbic system that uh, are associated with emotion. So, um, the, uh, you know, the amygdala is the kind of center, I guess, of the, of the limbic system, and it's responsible for fight or flight. And um, you could easily imagine, well, I actually think there's research suggesting that if if I'm in a you know a magnet for example if you put me in an fMRI machine and you're looking at and you're also videotaping my eyes um, if I see a really fearful stimulus you're not only going to get more blood flow to the amygdala but I'm you're probably going to get a bit of pupil dilation and also perhaps a a blink response like a um, uh, uh, you know, startle, we call it. So, I mean, there are definitely links between what's happening in the body and what's happening in the limbic system. Um, but uh, beyond, you know, I mean, that not we, we, we love to think that we know so much more about the brain than we do. And frankly, we love to think that we know so much more about nonverbal behavior than we do. But we're just, it's, you know, we're really just scratching the surface in and, both of these areas. And you've written about nonverbal body displays on online dating sites. How does a yeah. body react when we see someone we really like? Huh. So that's a really good question. You know, there wasn't a lot of psychology research on that. Um, there was some good anthropology. There was lots in the animal literature. There's all kinds of interesting things that, you know, animals do. They sort of, well, we'll, we'll leave that for another show. Mm. But 
basically, you know, um, we can't we, wag our tails. Uh, yeah, we can't wag our tails. Uh, things like that. So the um, in in our studies, liking and sexual attraction were dis- we we saw different types of displays. So. They're kind of think about liking in three different ways. So there's sort of, you know, eros, you know, the romantic desire. And then there's the kind of brotherly uh, liking where you're just sort of feeling affiliative with someone. Um, And then there's true love. So we didn't study true love, but we did study both liking, like I really like you and want to be your friend, and also um, I'm sexually attracted to you. And what we found was that when you like someone as a friend, you orient your body towards them, you are more likely to talk to them, you you know, you spend more time speaking, you look at them more often. All these we've actually known this for a long time. This you know, this researcher named Anderson many, many years ago, like thirty years ago or something, came up with this term called immediacy. He called them immediacy cues and it's this constellation of behaviors that signal I'm really into what you're saying right now. And that did not predict sexual desire so that we didn't see that. So so of the study, the paper that you're talking about actually had two studies. The first one was a speed dating study. So in that speed dating study, we had the luxury of coding all kinds of, of variables that were associated with love and liking and desire and all that. And so all we really saw there was that the only time that we saw a link between choosing someone to be your date partner and a nonverbal was when they had a nonverbal display of dominance. So they sort of got became more dominant. But we didn't we didn't know which direction that was happening. You know, Leonard, if you're like Dan, I really want to go on a date with you. Um, You might make me kind of get all dominant, like, oh, yeah, all right, Leonard wants to go on a date with me. Or it could be that because Dana is in a dominant position, Leonard says, wow, Dana's really, you know, she's really on her game. I want to go on a date with her. So we weren't, we didn't understand the causal direction um, of, like, what was causing what, because it was just a correlational study. So that that's when we did the speed dating study that you're referring to. So in that study, what we did, I'm sorry, that's when we did the, the online dating study that, we, that, that you're referring to. So there what we did was we, we manipulated whether the target to be dated person was either in a dominant or more subordinate or like, you know, a pose that was, you know, a posture that was kind of small and seemed like they weren't very confident or they were in more of a kind of a uh, displayed um, dominant posture. And we found that the the, the individuals, whether they were female or male, um, were more likely to get swiped yes if they were in a more dominant, open, um, nonverbal display. I'm speaking with Dr. Dana Carney, Associate Professor at the University of California, Berkeley Haas School of Business. Today, our topic on Please Explain is body language, and we're inviting your calls at 212-433-9692. We'll get to those calls in just a moment. We'll be back right after this. 
We are back with today's Please Explain Look at Body Language with Dana Carney, Associate Professor at UC Berkeley Haas School of Business, and we're inviting your calls at 212-433-9692. I want to get to those calls, but I do want to deal with the whole matter of power poses, standing up uh, erectly. Uh, does that really work? So, you know, it's a it's a question of great debate right now, so... You know, originally when we published the paper in 2010, we thought that it did work. I mean, we had every reason to believe that it did. We had, uh, you know, a lot of other papers that came out after hours that said, you know, kind of similar things. But there's been a bit of a kerfuffle about it since about 2015. Um, uh, a, a woman named Eva Rainhill in Switzerland she was fascinated with power poses. She loved them, and she wanted to do some research on them. So she tried and failed and couldn't replicate the finding. So she published the paper, and then that created more of a bit of a storm because my co-author, Amy Cuddy, had done a TED Talk that you know got really famous, and so we were getting lots of attention for the paper. And so, you know, that kind of attention brings other kinds of attention. And um, she, the the failed replication sort of started this whole conversation about, okay, if power poses are real, like, we need more evidence because we had, you know, not that many papers. And, and then there's, like, you know, an equal number of failed replication papers. So just a couple of days ago at SPSP, which is our our kind of flagship social psychology conference, there was a, a symposium dedicated to, there's actually a whole a whole entire edition of a journal is about to come out all dedicated to this topic of power poses, like are they real or are they not? So um, what they found was, and these were all replication attempts, that they do not appear to affect uh, cortisol or testosterone. Um, they don't appear to affect uh, risk-taking. But the effect that was pretty consistent was that people feel more powerful. So wh- whether these are demand characteristics, in other words, like, you know, when you put someone in, into an experiment and they're doing something and they think they're supposed to be feeling powerful, sometimes they tell you what you want to hear. You know, people just kind of, they're acquiescent. They, they go along with the, they go with the flow. So it's possible that that's the explanation for that, the remaining, I should say, the remaining power pose effect. But the, the audience at the conference, I wasn't there, but my the, my uh, colleague said that the, the audience was much more excited about going down different paths, sort of going down other routes, like cognitive routes. So if I feel more powerful, does that make me persist longer at a task? Or if I feel more powerful, you know, do other positive concepts pop into my mind that maybe make me feel happier. So I don't think power poses for surge is dead. I think that the the early idea and hope that we had that, you know, that it was like going to affect our testosterone and cortisol and those findings, I think, I think we probably, well, at least I can only speak for myself. I myself have very little faith in those, uh, those more exciting effects. Dana, I want to try to get a few of these calls in. Sure. Randy from Nassau County. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, thanks uh, for taking my call. So we're raising a generation that sits in front of a computer screen, text, you know, they don't even know how to make eye contact. How is the study of uh, body language going to be affected by a generation that don't know how to have 
you know, face-to-face conversation. Yeah, such a brilliant question. You know, you hire young kids, even millennials today, and they don't know how to basically pick up a phone, and they don't have phone skills. They can't they even know how to answer the phone. They text. They're on their computers. Um, so I don't know. I have no idea what we're going to do. So the the the, na- the landscape is going to change. Whether or not there's some socialization that will happen after they leave the house, I mean, you know, college is different. You start to even high school too. They they get out of the house and they start to have more social interaction. So I think some of this will go away, but I agree with you. I wonder if we're shifting toward a world in which we are generally just less expressive um, and we use uh, emojis more than actual smiles. Um, I think it's an empirical question uh, and a fascinating one. Well, we have another caller from Long Island, Sheila from Huntington. Hi, you're on the air. Yes. Hello. Thank you for your program. Um, I noticed that Donald Trump, in his campaigning and in his speeches, has used loud sniffing. Um, and I wonder if that would fall into nonverbal communication and what your guest thinks that it means. Hmm. You know, it's so funny, the sniffing. I, I long ago, I, so I don't know what it means. We don't have a lot of research on sniffing per se. I can tell you that when you take in a lot of breath, like this, you're down-regulating arousal. So we know, I mean, think about what, what do you do in yoga class? What do you do in meditation? You're mindful of your breath. So we do know that taking in breath down regulates arousal. It's possible that it's as simple as that. Or he could have allergies and he's just sniffling. I don't know. But it's it's fascinating that you ask that question because many years ago, like 20 years ago, and I was just 25 years ago, when I was just starting to study this stuff, I told my undergraduate research advisor, Maureen O'Sullivan, I said to her, Maureen, I think there's something about sniffing. I think that people are, you know, they're sniffing when their ego has been damaged or they're sniffing when they are um, uncomfortable in some way. And, she's, and, and she was like, Dana, I think you're right about that sniffing thing. So I don't know, but I'm so glad to hear that you have an intuition consistent with mine. And I'm going to watch some Trump just to look for the sniffs so that maybe it'll inspire me to actually do some research on it. Some research links lying with facial and bodily cues, such as increased pupil size and lip pressing. Um, How does that uh, affect a polygraph test? Can't some sociopaths fool a polygraph? Yeah, so so the, you're asking a bunch of separate questions. So the the first one about nonverbal cues to deception, there are some. There is no Pinocchio's nose. My former postdoc, Leanne Tenbrink, who's now uh, assistant professor at the University of Denver, always says there's no Pinocchio's nose. Um, we do see signals of arousal uh, through pupil dilation. The lip press, while it is true that it is a signal of deception, the, the correlation with whether or not you're lying is so tiny. It's like, on average, meta-analytically, it's a, it's a correlation of 0.16. That's teensy, weensy, weensy. So there are cues to deception, um, but they tend to be context-specific and person-specific. Now, with regard to a polygraph, now you're in a whole different world, and also sociopath. That's yet another different world. So sociopath or someone that has, you know, a kind of broken emotion system, 
they don't have that same conflict that a normal person has between, you know, knowing what the truth is and knowing what the lie is and the empathy about, you know, potentially uh, violating the, the norms of society or the norms of a relationship or the trust in a relationship. So they don't experience any of that conflict. So a sociopath can much more easily lie and pass a polygraph because they don't have those deviations from baseline. In both cases, you're looking for deviations from like typical physiological baseline, and then you ask a lie, and then you get a little, you know, increase in in skin temperature, for example. And Dana, um, we pretty much have to leave it there, unfortunately, because yeah. we've run out of time. Sure. And I'm lucky because I'm on the radio, and people can't see any of my body language. I, but I can hear your voice, and you make all kinds of nonverbals with your voice too. You know, Leonard. Well, we thank you so much. Our, our guest has been Dana Carney, associate professor of UC Berkeley Haas School of Business. I've been caught.